Lord, how they have increased who trouble me. Many are they who rise up against me. Many are they who say of me, there is no help for him in God. But you, O Lord, are the shield for me, my glory and the one who lifts up my head. I cried to the Lord with my voice, and he heard me from his holy hill. I lay down and slept. I awoke, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of ten thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you have struck all my enemies on the cheekbone. You have broken the teeth of the ungodly. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessings is upon your people. Does anyone here struggle with fear at all, ever? Anybody? Yeah. I think it's pretty universal. I think we all do. Um, so I've got a story, and some of you guys need to know it's not that story. It's about the abandoned warehouse up in the woods, but it's not that story about that crazy lady, so don't worry. This is a different story. Basically, backstory on this story. <laughs> um, me and my friends, when we were high school kids, I was a sophomore um, me and this guy named Phil Danu discovered this abandoned warehouse up in the mountains. And it was amazing. It was creepy. It was awesome. It was owned by the military. We found a permit to drive a tank. We found bullets and old telephones and old journals. It was amazing. Like, it, it got me addicted to abandoned places. I'm not usually a courageous person, but anytime I see an abandoned place, I'm like, we got to drop everything and do it. Like, we got to go in there. I don't care if there's, like, abandoned needles. Actually, I do. Don't step on abandoned needles. I'm just saying I don't care if it's dangerous. Um, I'll go in. I just make sure I'm wearing shoes. So anyway, the abandoned warehouse, me and my friends broke into it when we were in high school. Well, every single year we came back since, the hole in the wall we climbed through was sealed up. So we were very frustrated by this because we wanted to relive our high school years. So, you know, this is like years later. So now instead of uh, 15, I'm 25. So it's 10 years later. And my friends and I finally find another way into the building. But here is the problem. In order to get into the building, you had to climb onto the roof from the ground. And the only way you could do it was by going down this little ravine and then by jumping up, grabbing the top of the building and pulling yourself up by your weight. I couldn't do that because I'm kind of a heavy guy. So I was super bummed because all my stinking skinny friends are on the roof partying, trying to get ready to go into this abandoned building, and I just cannot hoist myself up. So option one, go crazy, get on the roof. I can't do it. What's option two for me? Option two is just go home, which I didn't want to do. I was so bummed. I was like, option one, I can't do it. I'm not athletically built enough to do that. Option two is so lame, just get in the car and go home. So I was like, option three, option three, what can I do? Here's what I did. There was a gate. I literally got on my hands and knees and I dug a hole underneath the gate and I crawled underneath the gate and I made it onto the roof, which felt pretty awesome. There's sometimes a third way and I think a lot of times there can be a third option that we don't think about. I want to ask you guys, and you don't have to like yell out or anything, but just think. How is the emotional life in your home? Like everyone's family dynamic when it comes to emotions is different. Some people, you might come from a home where when it comes to emotions, when it comes to talking about your feelings, it's kind of like you're supposed to just kind of stuff it inside. So, you know, those like situations where you're at the dinner table and you want to say something to your parents and they want to say something to you, but everyone kind of just represses their feelings and holds it in. Maybe that's you. You don't talk about your feelings. Other people come from homes where it's like everything's on the table. Like when you're sitting at the dinner table, like everyone's like yelling and just shouting and then hugging and crying. And it's just, um, maybe you come from that kind of family. You know, 
I think a lot of times the way that society paints our emotions is it's kind of an option between either you have to stuff it all inside or it has to be all out on the table. But I think in the Psalms, we see there's a third option that's a better one, and that is to pray through your emotions. So tonight, we're going to explore what it looks like to examine our fears and our emotions, not to stuff them inside, but to pray through them. Now, fear, guys, is one of the most primal human emotions. Primal means like you're born with it. For instance, like when you're a baby, who remembers being a baby? Anybody? Who remembers the womb? That's, that's weird. If you, Conrad? Please, no. Okay. We don't, we don't want to hear about that experience. When you're a baby, though, I mean, you have a pretty good setup. It's, it's kind of like you're floating in a bathtub, and it's warm. The, warm is, or the womb is warm. And, and, and you have a, a food tube, you know? It's like going in directly into your stomach. You're having food pumped into your stomach. You're sitting in a bathtub with food being pumped into your stomach. That, some of you guys are like, that sounds amazing. Like, I want that set up right now. And then think about it. When you're born, what happens? You are pushed into the world screaming. Screaming. And it's not like a free last scream. It's like you're afraid. You, that's, a, that's, a, that's, a, that's a cry of fear when you're pushed into the world and you're like, what is happening to me? It's cold. It's dark. Somebody's cutting me with scissors. Like this is terrible. We are literally born into the world in fear. And for many people, fear is also not only the first emotion they feel, but the last emotion they feel before they die. And fear is something that we all deal with. No one here can say that they're completely fearless. And so that's why, as we were going through this prayer series, this is uh, session two in our prayer series, we're going through the Psalms, and we're looking how, at how Psalms is the language of prayer. So we're looking at fear. This Psalm, Psalm 3, is a Psalm that's based on the life experience of David in a time in his life when he's terrified. Look at verse 1, right off the bat says, a psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. So what's that about? Like, backstory. A psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. Here's the backstory. We gotta look first at how did David become king. So we've got David, the shepherd boy. If you don't know the story, it starts out, David, the shepherd boy. He is one of many sons. He's got all these older brothers. And all of his older brothers are considered more handsome, more strong, more important, David's kind of the runt of the family, and he's in charge of the sheep. He's in charge of cleaning up after sheep, walking sheep, a boring job out in the hot, blistering sun. Now, Samuel, the prophet in, 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 of the time, he's looking for a new king. They had a king at the time, King Saul, but he was doing a really crummy job. So what happens is Samuel goes looking for a king, and God leads him to Bethlehem. And so he goes to the house of this guy named Jesse. That's David's father. And you guys know the story. Like, what happens? Jesse brings out all of his sons. He's like, here's my sons. They're tall. They're handsome. They're successful. And Samuel goes, you know what? God doesn't look at the outside appearance. He actually looks at the heart. And none of these guys have a good heart. Don't you have one more son? And Jesse goes, well, I've got David out in the fields. And David is kind of like, for most of you guys, he's about your age. He's 15, 16 years old. He's a young guy. So what happens? Well, David gets anointed king. And then what happens? You guys know the rest of the story. David ends up killing Goliath, the biggest enemy of Israel. He gets promoted. He's this 15, 16-year-old dude. He kills the giant Goliath through the power of God. And then he gets promoted to the general of Saul's army. And then Saul ends up dying. And David gets anointed, or he gets promoted to king. So now he's the king of Israel. And people love him and respect him. It'd be like if Phil Wickham became king. 
Like think of, think of it like in the Christian world, Phil Wickham or Jeremy Camper, these guys who are very respected and they're worship leaders. That's what David was. He was a king. He was a worship leader. He was tall, good looking, handsome guy. Just everyone loved him. People were singing songs about him. He was fantastic. But then we get to a point in David's life where he starts to take all the things that the Lord has given him for granted. God's given him a great kingdom. He's given him a great wife. He's given him so much riches and a castle and, and, and men, soldiers who look up to him. Well, David takes it all for granted. David had everything going for him, but there was a key point where things started to turn. He gets lazy. I don't know how many of you guys know this part of the story, but man, that fire is going crazy. Can you guys still hear me? Yeah? Okay. So it gets to the point where David's been king for a while now, and David's the kind of guy who's out on the battlefield just fighting his enemies, slaying giants. He is a warrior king, warrior king, worship leader, amazing guy. And then what ends up happening is he gets lazy. One year, he decides, I'm not going to go to fight. I'm not, I mean, I know I'm the king and I'm supposed to be on the front lines, but I'm going to stay back and let my men fight for me. And while he's on his roof, he looks and he sees a girl taking a bath. Probably at that point, you should stop spying on a girl taking a bath, because I don't know why she was taking a bath on her roof where he could see her. That's really awkward. Um, but anyway, instead of looking away like he should have, he actually calls her up and says, hey, why don't you come on over? And she comes on over, and they sleep together, and she gets pregnant. And at that point, he ends up having to kill the woman's husband. Yes, she's a married woman. He kills the woman's husband, and then he covers it up. David begins this downward spiral. He had everything, and yet he took it for granted. He wanted more. Well, what ends up happening is he's exposed. He gets caught. Everyone finds out what he did. God punishes him, and his baby gets sick and dies. And then things get worse for David. In 2 Samuel chapter 15, his son Absalom, who's about your guys' age, now David's an older man, and he has this son who's the new, young, good-looking prince of Israel. And his son Absalom rebels. And this is what he did. It's so crazy. I was listening to another pastor teach on this and I didn't actually know this, but Absalom would actually hang out in the gate of the city. And during this time, God was just punishing David and David's just, his heart is heavy. He's not doing a good job as king. He's super discouraged and he's dropping the ball everywhere. Like people are getting hurt by David's like lack of being a good leader. His son Absalom would hang out by the gate and he would tell people, yeah, my dad's kind of a bad leader. You know, if I was king, things would be a lot better. He was gossiping about his dad. He was totally putting his dad down. And what happens is Absalom actually gets an army of men to rebel against King David and it's it's called a coup. He's overthrowing his father at this point. So in 2 Samuel chapter 15, David is chased out of the city, the city that he built. He's chased out of the city. And David is left with only about 200 supporters. Absalom chases his father with an army of 12,000 men trying to kill him. Super heavy stuff. So look at verse one again. It's not a good day. So of course, I mean, David's being chased by 12,000 men. He is dealing with a great deal of fear and anxiety. What does he do? He prays through his fears. We see in David's life, he's faced with the choice of what am I gonna do? And he turns to God and he begins to pray through his fears. Look at verse one. He says, Lord. Now, anytime you see Lord in the Old Testament, that word Lord is actually, it's the translation of Yahweh, which is the name of our God. So he says, Yahweh, how they have increased who trouble me. 
Many are they who rise up against me. See, what he's doing right now is he's bringing the source of his fear before Yahweh. David starts by praying through his fears. What fears are you facing tonight? What's going on in your life that has you scared, straight up afraid where you don't know what's gonna happen next? I've definitely got things in my life that I'm afraid of, things in the future that scare me. We see the model of David, what he does, guys, is he, he takes his fears and he doesn't just hold on to them. He doesn't just bring them in front of other people. He brings them to Yahweh and lays them down. He says, Yahweh, there are 12,000 people chasing me. He says, many, many are those who rise up against me. What's scaring him? What's scaring David? 12,000 soldiers are scaring David. 12,000 soldiers who want to kill him. It's this clear, definable source of fear for David. For you, what is a clear source of fear in your life? You know, it's not just, it's not just the actual soldiers and their swords that David is afraid of. It's their trash talk and their gossip and their propaganda. Look at verse two. David says, not only are there many trying to kill me, he says, many are they who say of me, there is no help for him in God. They're not, in this verse, the people saying these things, they're not questioning God's existence. They're not saying, we don't believe in God. They're, they're, they're saying, I don't believe that God is with David. I believe God is with us. What's being threatened is not just David's life, but his entire Identity. According to some of the scholars who read this passage, they believe that since David had committed adultery, there was many who believed that he was beyond hope for heaven. There was many who believed that David was not going to heaven because he had committed adultery. He was their king. They looked up to him and he slept with another man's wife and then killed that man. There was many in the kingdom who looked at David and said, he's without hope. There's no way he's gonna be in the kingdom. His son had lost all respect for him. I know none of you guys are parents, but just imagine if you were, you, you had this kid and you raised them into the age of 16 years old and now they've lost all respect for you and now they're actively trying to kill you. Think of how much that would hurt. David is dealing with fear, but he's also, there, there's something else here. There's another layer here. It's not just fear. David is dealing with anxiety. Now, are any of you guys taking any psychology classes in school right now or have you ever taken any psychology classes, anything like that? Yeah. So just a few of you guys. So psychology, it shows us that human fear is actually complex. There's many phobias out there. There's uh, taphophobia, which is the fear of being buried alive. That one makes sense to me. I, I think I have taphophobia. I'm, a fear. I'm afraid of being buried alive. There's hylophobia, which is the fear of forests, woodlands, and trees. I don't have that one. That one's a little bit more interesting. There's... Paternatobia, or to paterna, these are, they get in, intensely hard to pronounce, so I'm gonna probably butcher these. Uh, paternophobia, the fear of being tickled with feathers. I don't know if anyone has that one. There is, I'm gonna have to read this really slowly. Hexacosia, a hexaconta hexaphobia. This is the fear of the number 666. You see it and you go, evil, evil. And then there is phobophobia which is the fear of having a fear. <laughs> You're just like, oh, I don't want to be afraid. I'm so afraid of being afraid. And you know, there's many phobias people have. There's also many reasons, many deep, strange, psychological reasons. Maybe some of you guys have fears here today and there's psychological reasons to things that happened in your past 
that you, can, you, you can't even explain or even acknowledge sometimes, but they're there. The most common word that we use to describe fear is anxiety. And that word was given to us by this guy named Rollo, which is pretty rad to have a name named Rollo. This guy named Rollo May. And his defi- he was a psychologist, and he was like one of those guys you know, who wore the turtleneck sweaters and had the cool glasses in the 60s, just total 60s psychologist. He gave a definition of fear where he said, fear is an ex- instinctive response to a clear and present danger. Fear is an instinctive response to a clear and present danger. So fear is about when there's a real identifiable or identifiable threat in front of you. So there's a car coming towards you. What do you have? You have fear. You're not, you don't have anxiety over it. You have literal fear of a car literally coming towards you. And what happens is your adrenal, your adrenal glands fill with adrenaline and it starts rushing to your head and a burst of energy and clarity come to you to save your life and instantly you're Spider-Man. You know what I'm talking about in those moments where a car is coming towards you and all of a sudden you just have like superhuman ability to dodge it? That's what fear does to us. So Professor Rollo May says that fear is a positive, constructive response. Fear not, isn't necessarily a bad thing. Fear can prevent us from hurting ourselves. But what about anxiety? This is his, his definition of anxiety. He contrasts it with fear. He says fear is something that's temporary. It's a flood of energy in response to something that's real and tangible in front of you. But he says anxiety is very strange. It's very vague. It's this feeling of dread It's this feeling of weakness, and it's this feeling of fragileness, fragility. And there's no clear, identifiable source. Have you ever felt that before, that anxiety where just you wake up in the middle of the night, or you have a panic attack, and and people ask you what's wrong, and you're like, I don't know, but I just have this overwhelming feeling of dread. And sometimes it's even a dread of death. Because as humans, we, we fear death, even as Christians, because there's something in us that says death makes all of our accomplishments meaningless. That's how we feel. Everything we've worked for, all the loves and the losses and the hard work and the grades and just the video game scores or whatever, all the things you feel like you've worked for when you die, it's like, where does that go? And so there can be this this dread and this fear and this anxiety, this feeling of worry. And Professor Rollo says this as well. He says, sometimes the anxiety that we face, it can be the wear and tear of what he calls a thousand tiny deaths. We all die every year from moments of sadness and disappointment. Some of you guys are like, wow, this is a really depressing study. Okay, it'll get better. But here's the thing. What's at, what's at stake with anxiety for us is it's our very sense of identity. It causes us, anxiety causes us to doubt we are people who have value or lives with meaning. If fear is a lightning storm, it happens quick and then it's over. Anxiety is like June gloom. It just, it comes and it sets and and it's like the weather. Well, we're in California, so we don't know what that's like, but it's those seasons in the winter where everything's gray and we're wondering what's going on and it won't stop raining and it's muggy and hot. That's, That's what anxiety is like. And I think in anxiety... Fear and anxiety are helpful categories for what David is going through. David is facing this crisis of identity. He's like, if I'm not king, then who am I? If God is not for me, if what people say is true about me, if the rumors are true, if God has left me, then who am I if God has abandoned me? So remember, what does David do? Number one, he brings the source of his fear to Yahweh. Number two, he confesses his anxiety. He tells God, I'm dealing with this anxiety. I'm dealing with this fear, real tangible fear. There's people trying to murder me. He's dealing with this anxiety. There's rumors about me that say that you're not for me, God, and I'm deeply troubled by that. 
What's the third thing that he does? This is where we see the great contrast. We, we see that, G, or that David finds strength in God. He finds strength in God. Look at verse three. This is where it starts to get really good. If you're here tonight and you're dealing with fear and anxiety in any way, please listen. Look at verse three. David turns his attention from himself to his God. He says, but you, O Lord, O Yahweh, are a shield for me, my glory and the one who lifts up my head. This is a crazy contrast. It's totally a tone change. David calls out to God. He takes his attention off of the source of his fear. He, he brought that to God first. He laid it out. But now he takes his attention off the source of his fear, and he turns his attention towards the source of his strength. And the first thing that David says is he goes, he goes Yahweh, you're my shield. You are my shield. Now, why does someone strap on a shield? Why does someone ever put on a shield? Is it because they're like, today's going to be a great day, so I'm going to wear a shield. Has anyone ever done that? No, no one would ever be like, today is going to be such a great day, I'll just have a shield. No, you put on a shield when you anticipate that your day is going to go really bad. When you anticipate that you're going to be attacked, you don't walk around with a shield unless you know a battle's coming, unless you know that you're walking in to a war zone. Or unless you're a LARPer. Anyone know about LARPers? They're those guys, yeah? They're, they're those guys. Sam, did you do it? No? Oh, he's like, nope. No. Did he really? Well, you know, uh, here's, what, here's what a LARPer does. A LARPer uh, is somebody who dresses up like a fantasy character and has a sword and a shield and a bow and all that stuff. And they go out and they do a live action role-playing game. So like, you could LARP Lord of the Rings or The Hobbit. You could dress up. Some of you guys are like, let's do that tomorrow. I will do it with you because I'm a huge nerd. But okay, so I'm being silly, but like this is honestly a serious thing we're talking about. Do we think about think about shields again? He says, Yahweh, you're my shield. Do we assume that a shield will stop an attack from happening? Is that your guarantee? If you put on a shield, do you do you guarantee that you're not gonna be attacked? No. You put on a shield because you know you're going to be attacked. What does a shield do? Does it does it completely stop the attack from happening? No, but it protects your vitals. If you hold up a shield in front of you, it protects your heart, it protects your lungs, it can protect your head and your face if you hold it up high. A shield does not stop an attack from happening, but it protects what's vital. And guys, that is what God wants to be for us. There's this great story in Acts chapter 11, I think, where Paul is going through a shipwreck. The apostle Paul is on this boat, and it's about to crash, it's about to smash and burn against the rocks. And what Paul says to the crew is he says, listen, take heart because God has told me that he is with us and we will suffer no loss of life, only the ship. He says, "What you, we, guys, we're gonna lose something. This ship is gonna explode. It's going to be gone. We're going to lose something physical, but us, our human physical souls and our bodies as well, bonus, that's gonna live. We're gonna survive and the shipwreck happens and everything survives. God, or guys, when you guys go through trials, you need to know that Yahweh, God, Jesus is your shield and he says, I, I'm not gonna stop every bad thing from happening to you, but I will be with you as it happens. I will be your shield and I will protect what is most vital about you. I will protect your heart, your mind, and your soul. Guys, a lot of times we assume that God's role in our life is to keep bad things from happening to us. But if God stopped every bad thing from happening, he'd have to completely just remove sin. If, if God completely removed sin, he'd have to remove us. 
God allows us to live in this fallen, corrupted world where there's sin, where there's heartache, but he loves us enough to live with us in this world. God's not just up in heaven living, living his life up there and looking down on us. God is with us. That's what Jesus is all about. God is with us, experiencing all the pain and all the heartache with us. Guys, when, a shield, when you have a shield, when a horrible things happen, the shield is right there with you. It doesn't stop the bad things from happening, but it's right there protecting you. And we have an enemy and he hates us. So you need to know we will be attacked, but we have a shield. We make an assumption whenever we go through hard times that God has abandoned us. And if you're like, kind of like, ah, I mean, I don't know if I really do that. You know what? It's superhuman to do that because what did Jesus say on the cross? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Remember that Jesus is on the cross. And in that moment of pain, Jesus himself was like, God, where are you? Jesus himself said that. So how much more? We're not Jesus. I don't know about you, but I'm not Jesus. How much more do we go through seasons and times where we say, God, where are you? God, where are you? We go through doubts. But listen, Yahweh is with us. God is with us and he is our shield. Here's another thing a shield does. Another thing a shield does is if you have a shield and you're attacked, the shield absorbs the blow. So if you hold the shield in front of you, the sword comes down and you don't receive the full force of the blow because the shield absorbed the pain that was meant for you. This is what God does to us. When Jesus died on the cross, he absorbed the pain of hell. He absorbed the pain of death so that we didn't have to. Guys, we have the best shield ever. And as you're going through trials, you need to know that God loves you so much. And maybe today you're going through something terrible. Maybe you're facing extreme hardships in your family life. Maybe you're dealing with extreme challenges at school. Maybe your heart is just broken over something. You need to know that God has not forsaken you. He is right there with you, absorbing the blows, standing in front of you, weeping when you weep, loving you through your pain, absorbing the blows of the enemy. He didn't just do it on the cross. He continues to do it. He continues to absorb those blows. He is with you. And as you pray, remember that. Remember as you pray, you pray to a God who wants to protect you. He's our shield. The next thing, that he says in verse three. The next metaphor he uses is he says, God, you are my glory. Yahweh, you are my glory. Now, what does glory mean? We recently studied it on a Sunday. Does anyone remember the Hebrew word for glory? We went over it a couple weeks ago. Anybody? Yeah? Starts with a K. Ka. Ka. <laughs> Ka. No, it's kavod. Kavod. So he says, Yahweh, you are my glory. You are my Kavod. What does it mean? It means heavy. It's this heaviness. It's something where you look at it and it just has this weight, this importance. Like I think of like a heavy moment. Have you guys ever had something like crazy happen? You're like, whoa, that's heavy. Anybody? I've said that. No one says that. I say rad and I say heavy. I go, whoa, that was heavy, bro. Um, it might be a 90s thing. I don't know. I remember when I watched uh, The Force Awakens um, and I watched Han Solo die. By the way, if you haven't seen the movie, it's been way too long, so you deserve to have it spoiled. But I remember, just, just as a, this is a side note, but I remember right after it came out, there was a bunch of guys who wanted to see it, and we were in the church van. Justin. And Justin Westby, like, we just, I'm like, hey, guys, have you seen The Force Awakens? And Justin's just like, Han Solo dies. <laughs> and just starts laughing, because he totally blew it for everyone. Anyway, anyway, in that moment, 
where Han Solo is talking to his, his son, his son, Kylo Ren, Ben Skywalker, or Ben Solo. He's standing on the bridge. It's, by the way, if you're in the Star Wars universe, it's never good to stand on a bridge. It's pretty much guaranteeing someone's going to get murdered. Um, anyway, though, they're standing on a bridge. <laughs> Even though, yeah, there's so many people who have died on bridges in Star Wars. They're standing on that bridge, and they're talking. And, and Han Solo is like, son, you got to come back to the light side. you got to do it. And his son's like, dad, I think I'm ready. And then they, like, hug. And then as they're hugging... Kylo Ren stabs his dad in the chest with a lightsaber, and Han Solo, one of the greatest icons of generations of generations of the heroes, falls to his death. And I was sitting in the theater, and I was like, whoa, that's heavy. It's Kavod. Here's another example. Um, you guys know the story of King Eglon in the Bible? Anybody King Eglon? He's, he's the really fat guy? You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, everyone's like, oh, I know. Uh, Gideon. Gideon, yeah. yeah. And it, like the sword got sucked into his gut. Um, so... In the Bible, when it talks about King Eglon, it says he was, a, he was a man who was full of kavod. So it could mean either he was a man who was very glorious or he was a man who was very heavy. I think it was a little bit of both. <laughs> Heaviness, kavod, it's, it's something that has significance or importance. And humans, like we all know God is glorious. We look at him, we go, whoa, it's so heavy. So kavod, that's amazing. People can have kavod too. People can have glory. When David became king, he was glorious. He had glory. He had riches and purple robes, and he was famous. He was just this great king. How does a teenager, your guys' age, how do you guys get kavod? How do you guys get glory? Here's a couple ways. When you're the valedictorian, it's this glorious moment, and people in the audience don't even know, but they're looking at you walking down with your like, special cap and gown that's like a different color, I think, than everyone else, and they're like, whoa, kavod, so heavy, so glorious. When you're playing football and you score that touchdown, everyone's like, in their heart, what they're saying is, glory, kavod, and they're clapping for you. Those guys who were like, you know, the dang Daniel guys, everyone, they went viral and everyone was, kavod, you're so glorious for like five minutes and then we forgot about you. Um, you do a really good promposal and it just goes super viral and you're just amazing and everyone's like, whoa, that's so great. Like, like, like on Instagram. That's how we get, we get glory. We get kavod. And we all know we're supposed to give glory to God. And for us to glorify God, guys, it's not just us singing about him. For us to glorify God, it's us as a youth group confessing together that God's the most important reality in our life. So at this moment, what has happened to David's kavod, David's glory? It's completely gone. He's cheated on his wife. He's killed a man and tried to cover it up. He's been exposed publicly. His baby died as punishment for his sin. And his own son is trying to kill him. David was once a glorious man, and now his glory is gone. His identity is gone. There's a story in the book of 2 Samuel where David is walking by the city gate defeated, and this homeless guy named Shimmy comes out. His name is Shimmy. And he comes out, and he looks at David, and he goes, you're a terrible king. You're a horrible father. You're a failure. You should just get the heck out of town. And David's soldiers are like, do you want us to kill this guy? Because he's like, we could, we could literally just stab him to death right now. And what David, David is so broken. He just goes, he's right. He's right. I am nothing. I used to be somebody and now I'm nothing. David is completely, completely destroyed. His identity is completely destroyed. Everything he thought he was, a king, a father, a husband, a military leader, everything is gone. It's the sad reality of human nature 
No matter how much we get, we always want more. They ask celebrities who are way richer and famous, or they're way more rich and famous than we could ever even want to be. And they ask them, what do you want? They're like, we just want happiness. We just want more. We just want more. And it's sad. David threw it all away. Um, I'm a big fan of the Beatles. And they had a really good thing going. And then um, they were only around for about 10 years. And then what happened was the guys in the band got girlfriends and the girlfriends started fighting and the band started fighting and everyone decided we're going to break up and go their own way. And it's like this band that could have lasted for another 30 years, but they broke up. And uh, Paul McCartney, the bassist in the Beatles, he wrote a couple songs towards John Lennon, his best friend, um, where he said, here's a couple lines. He said, uh, John, that was your big mistake. It was your lucky break and you broke it in two. Now what can be done for you? And then he says in another song, I guess you never knew, dear boy, what you had found. I guess you never knew, dear boy, that it was just the sweetest thing around. He's saying we had it all. We had fame and fortune and all this stuff and we threw it away and now our band's broken up. This is where David finds himself. Completely lacking identity. Here's what I love about this verse. Look at the verse again. In verse three, he says, you, O Lord, are my shield and my glory. See, in verse two, here's what people are saying. They're they're saying God is not with David. That word God in the Hebrew is Elohim. And what it means, you know, I don't know if you guys know this, but God has different titles. He calls himself different names. One of them is Elohim. So they say Elohim is not with David. What Elohim means is the judge of the universe. The judge of the universe is not with David because David's guilty. But when David talks about God, he doesn't talk about Elohim, the judge of the universe. He calls upon Yahweh. And Yahweh means the merciful one, the one who breathes hope into the heart. David says, God, I'm nothing. I'm worthless. You are the great judge, but you're also the merciful one. And I call on you. David says, you're my glory. He says, God, I am nothing, but you are my glory. What he's saying is my glory is not found in being king or being father or being just military leader or popular or successful. He says, God, my glory is found only in you because I'm made in the image of you. And guys, when you're feeling down, when you're feeling pathetic and worthless, when you're feeling like a nobody, which is something I feel like often, you have to go to the Lord and you have to say, God, I realize that my glory only comes from you. Let's look at verse four. David says, I cried to the Lord with my voice and he heard me from his holy hill. David prays. We're, guys, what we're reading is a prayer and we're going through it. David starts, what does he start by doing? He confesses his fear, he confesses his anxiety. Then what, what, then what does he do? He calls out to the Lord and he says, God, but you're my shield. You're my strength. You're where I find my identity. You're where I find my glory. It's all in you. You lift my head up high when it's down. In verse four, he cried to the Lord. He says, I cried to the Lord with my voice and he heard me from his holy hill. He heard my call. Now, what does that mean? Holy hill. Or um, do some of you guys have in your translations, holy mountain? Anybody? No, you guys are looking at it, but just listen. Um, what is, what is that talking about? Holy hill, holy mountain. Anyone, have you heard that term in your Bible class at all? My holy hill, my holy mountain. <coughs> if you're an Israelite reading Psalm 3, you're going to know that when David refers to the holy hill, he's talking about the hill where the temple is. The temple of the Lord. This is super significant. Why? 
What happens in the temple? What would happen in the temple that would make a guy like David, who is an adulterer, a murderer, and a failure, feel like God accepted him? Anybody? What happens in the temple? Anybody? Are you with me? Anybody? Yeah. What happens in the temple, James? The priests would do the animal sacrifices in the temple. And the sacrifices of the animals is what God used to say the blood of the animals covered the people and so they could be forgiven for their sins. It was the sacrifice. This is, this is really amazing. David calls out to the Lord and he says, God, I know where you are. I know where you answer. You answer from the place of sacrifice. You answer at the place where you can forgive my sins. I called and you answered and you came to my rescue and you forgave me. And guys, we, David was on this side of the cross, but we are on the other side. And because we are on the other side of the cross, that means that we have it even better than David. When we call out to God, he answers us from the place of the cross where all of your sins are on the cross. Right now, some of you guys are in fear because of your sins. You know your sins. You know your struggles. It's not just fear. It's not just anxiety. You are struggling with messing up all the time, dropping the ball, failing. You're letting your parents down. You're letting your teachers down. You're letting your friends down. You're letting yourself down. Some of you guys are in this place tonight, and I know that for a fact because you're human. Some of you guys are here, and you feel like your life is a mess, and you're trying to put a happy face on the outside, but everything on the inside feels like it's falling apart. God looks at you. And he says, I answer from my holy hill, the hill called Calvary, where Jesus died on the cross for you. That is why he can hear you. I've been reading this book called Moving Mountains, which is all about prayer um, by a guy named John Eldridge. And I'm gonna read you guys this really cool passage from the book. So this is what John Eldridge says. He says, most of all, above, uh, I can't talk. Most of all, above every other reminder, as you turn your gaze to God in prayer, What is your heart's conviction on his heart? Is he loving? Is God loving? Oh, how it helps me to remind myself, I'm praying to the one who gave his life for me. When we look to the stormy seas of our circumstances to try to assure ourselves God is loving, we are fighting a losing battle. That is why we have to go to the true fixed point in the universe, the man hanging in execution on Calvary's hilltop. In Romans 5, 6 through 8, it says, You see, at just the right time when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man, someone might be possibly able to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Then John goes on to say, This resolves the issue in a way nothing else can remotely touch or settle. You should not, must not, please, please do not evaluate the loving kindness of God towards yourself by the swirling tornado of events, especially by whether or not he seems to be answering your prayer at the moment. Your heart cannot take such abuse. You will find yourself swirling around like Dorothy in a Kansas tornado, debris flying this way and that. It will leave you exhausted, uncertain, fearful, and desolate after a few months, let alone years. He says, I'm praying to the one who gave his life for me. Just let that sink in for a moment. Picture the event in your mind. I'm praying to the one who hung on a cross for me. When you remember that, you will be confident when you talk to him. I heard this sad story of 
this dad who's just this really successful businessman. He's really focused on his work. He's the kind of dad who he goes to work, not for nine to five. He doesn't come home until eight. And then as soon as he gets home, he eats dinner really quick. And then he goes into his home office, locks the door and doesn't spend time with his wife or kids. And I heard this story of just this brother and sister who just loved their dad and they wanted to spend time with him. They wanted to feel a connection with their dad. And so what they do is they go to his door and they'd knock and there'd just be no answer, no response. But they didn't want to give up. So what they did was they started writing notes to their dad and they started slipping them underneath the door saying, Dad, please come out. We just want to talk to you for a minute. We just want to give you a hug. Dad, please, please, Father, please. But they never got any response. Guys, that is not the God that we serve. That is not the God who died on the cross for you. In Romans 8, 15, it says, for you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship and by him we cry, Abba, Father. Guys, God wants to give you a better relationship between you and him than any human physical relationship you could have on earth, whether it's with a boyfriend or girlfriend or whether it's with a dad or a mom or a sister or a brother. God wants to give you everything you need And he says, it's all right here. I died on the cross for it. You don't have to be a slave to fear because you are a child of God. And yeah, we've all heard that we are God's children, that we're his sons and daughters. And, you know, there's the curse of familiarity because it's like we we know that word. You know, oh, I'm the son and daughter of God. It can kind of become dull to us and we miss out on the crazy truth. The reality of it has not penetrated our hearts deeply enough. We still act and pray like orphans or slaves. Seriously. Here's what a slave does. A slave feels reluctant to pray like, so we feel like a lot of times we're, we're slaves to God. We feel like we're, we're like, oh, I'm, because God died for me, I have to live for him. So we feel like slaves. A slave feels reluctant to pray. They feel like they have no right to ask, so their prayers are modest and respectful. They spend more time asking forgiveness than they do praying for blessing. God, please forgive me. I'm such a sinner. I'm such a sinner. And you're always down on yourself when you pray. Maybe this is you. They view the relationship with reverence because they say God is my master and maybe even fear, but not with the tenderness of love of being loved. There's no intimacy in the language of their feelings. Maybe that's you to hear tonight. Maybe your relationship with God is just every, every time you mess up, you go to him and you say, God, please forgive me. I've messed up, I've messed up. But you don't realize his love for you. You don't realize he wants you to call him father. You don't realize that when you sin, he looks at you like a little kid who fell down, not some horrible, corrupted person. He looks at you like a child that he loves desperately. Others of us pray like orphans. An orphan is not reluctant to pray. An orphan feels desperate, but their prayers feel more like begging than anything else. You still don't feel that connection to God. You feel like you, feel like you have to beg him, God, please just, just take a moment to stop what you're doing and just help me with what I'm dealing with. Orphans feel a great distance between themselves and the one to whom they speak. Blessing is a foreign concept. They have a poverty mentality and it permeates their prayer life. So they ask for scraps. They don't ask for blessings. It's just, God, just if you can spare the time to help me. I know you're dealing with a lot. I know I haven't read my Bible in a long time. Maybe that's you tonight. Maybe you feel like an orphan. Maybe you feel like there's distance between you and God because you're not spending time with him. And you think it's because he doesn't love you, but it's really because you're not just just being with him. And so you feel this distance. And so it's like, God, I know I haven't read my Bible in a long time. I know I probably don't even deserve it, but just please, I need this right now. I need your help. But guys, we're not orphans. And we're not slaves. We're sons and daughters. And sons and daughters know exactly who they are, right? Like, 
do you ever come home and you're like, who am I? Like, what, what is my context here? Like, am I allowed to open up the fridge and eat stuff? I don't know. Like, if, if you live in a house where you have to, like, second guess if you can open up the fridge and eat stuff, I'm sorry. But for most people, it's like, you can go to the cabinet and have a snack. You can open up the fridge and make a sandwich. If mail comes in, you're not like, oh, no. You're like, oh, it's for me. Because you live there. Because you're a son and daughter. Guys, you are the sons and daughters of Jesus Christ, of Yahweh God, and he loves you so much. Listen to this amazing verse. Hebrews 2, 14 through 15. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death, he might destroy him who holds the power of death. That is the devil and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. Guys, we are no longer slaves to fear because we are children of God. Does that mean you're never gonna face stuff that causes fear? Absolutely not. You will face fear. Does that mean you'll never struggle with anxiety? No, you will at times. But during those times, you look to the Father and you say, you're my strength, you're my shield, you're my glory. I find my hope in you. And even though I'm really scared right now, God, you are there for me. I don't know what your situation with your dad was like, but I just, I remember growing up and I was very fortunate to have a good dad. And I remember sometimes I'd be scared as a kid, but anytime I got in the car and dad was driving, I was never afraid. I just had this sense where I knew dad was, was doing what he knew to do. Anytime dad put me on his shoulders and, and he carried me, I, I knew that I was going to be okay. And I don't know what your relationship with your dad is like. I know that there's a huge spectrum here of dad son or daughter relationships. And whether it's been good or bad, you just, you need to know that God looks at you and he says, I am the good, good father. And I will carry you through the pain you're dealing with. I will hold you close through every trial and struggle because I love you. We're no longer slaves to fear because we are children of God. Just a couple more things, guys, and then we'll break up into small groups. Look at verse five. Verse five is so beautiful. I love it. He says, I lay down and I slept. That's beautiful. Like, that's super simple, but think about it. He's running from 12,000 people trying to kill him. But because he puts his faith in God, he's able to rest. He's able to sleep. He's able to get a good night's sleep. Some of you guys maybe are struggling with anxiety and, and you're having a hard time sleeping. I'm gonna be praying for you tonight that God will help you rest because you can rest in him. Some of you guys, you might feel like it's hard to rest. Some of you guys are dealing with so many fears and anxieties. Some of you guys are dealing with fear in your family. What's gonna happen with mom and dad? It just feels kind of shaky or maybe things have gotten really bad. Some of you guys are dealing with sicknesses and you're wondering what's gonna happen to my loved one who's sick. Some of you guys are dealing with just the anxiety that comes with struggling for success where you feel like failure looms around every corner. Things are going great with football right now, but one wrong move and you could be out for the season with an injury. Things are going great right now with your grades, but one wrong move and all of a sudden your GPA comes down and, and dreams are shattered. I was talking to a young man today who was just stressing out over this girl he wanted to ask to homecoming. It was so cute, uh, but it was, it was just, it was so sweet. The, the fear, I remember that fear, that fear of dialing that phone and calling that girl and asking her. And I faced a lot of rejection. Pretty much every girl I asked to anything said no. And so there was just, there was fear that comes with that. 
I was reading about a, a woman named Agnes Sanford. She was a woman who had the gift of healing. She was able to pray for people and they'd be healed. I do believe this is a real thing. I know we don't see it a lot, but I believe it's so real and I have seen people get healed through prayer. So this, this lady, Agnes Sanford, was someone who was just very given to the gift of healing and, and she was able to heal, or God healed many people through her prayers. And it was very interesting because when she was praying for sick children, she would a lot of times tell the parents to leave the room because the parents were so full of anxiety and fear that it was kind of quenching the Holy Spirit from working. So she'd have the parents step out of the room and she'd pray for the kids. And I think there's some truth to that because I feel like in our own life, when we allow ourselves to be given to fear, not saying it's a sin to have fear, but when you're given to fear, where you say, well, God can't do that. God can't come through. God can't bless. God can't heal. God can't save. We quench the Holy Spirit. Guys, bring your fears to Jesus and rest and let him work. Fix your eyes and your mind and your heart upon the God who can heal. In the last couple of verses, look at verse six. David says, I will not be afraid of 10,000 people who have set themselves against me all around. And you read that and you're like, really, David? Like if 10,000, 12,000 people were coming after me, I would definitely be afraid. But David has his confidence in the Lord. He's confident in the Lord. Guys, we can have confidence in the Lord. We, we can have confidence in Christ. Remember how anxiety, a lot of times, it can be this deep-seated fear of death, even, this unspoken fear of death, because you think, man, if I die, everything I've worked for is gone. Guys, because we believe in Jesus, we believe in life after death, life that is better than life now. New heaven, new earth. New earth, I don't a lot of times think about the new earth, but I've been thinking about it a lot more the past couple years. I used to think of heaven as just this weird, disconnected, kind of like the, this, this smoke. It's just kind of like, what is it? It's just kind of, I think I can see it, but it's gone. The Bible talks about new heaven, and that's gonna be awesome, whatever that is. But it also talks about new earth. And so, like, in the final heavenly kingdom, there's a chance we make it to sit around a fireplace or a fire pit like this again and talk about all the amazing things that God did in our life in the past we might be able to experience amazing things about life. I'm excited to surf waves. I've never surfed. I'm excited to have a body without limitations. I'm excited to skydive because I never would do that now. Brooklyn wants to go on a hot air balloon. I would never do that. In, in the heavenly kingdom, I'm, I'm gonna do a hot air balloon because I won't have fear because I'll, I'll be invincible. Guys, here's the thing. Here's the thing. That fear of death where everything we work for is gone, we don't have to have that fear because in the next life, everything we did for Christ, everything we did for Jesus remains. All of the things we worked for for Christ, this moment will remain. That time you gave a cup of water to a small child in love, that will remain. All the things you did out of the love of your heart, out of kindness, out of sincerity, out of your love for God, all of those things will remain. Guys, we have so much to look forward to. In verse seven, check this out. This is what David says. This is where he starts to get kind of emo, kind of emotional. David says, arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you have struck all my enemies on the cheekbone. You have broken the teeth of the ungodly. Now, some of us, 
who might be kind of like, all right, David, calm down. You know, it was a nice prayer about, you know, God, bless me and help me. I'm such a bad guy. I need your help. But now David's like, bust up my enemies, God. Knock out their teeth, dash them upon the rocks. Now, have you, have you ever felt this way? Have you ever felt angry towards people? Have you ever prayed? Like, I remember there was this guy named Michael. I, I just could not stand growing up. I was always like, Michael, oh, Michael. And Michael, like, he's a great guy now. But, like, I remember growing up, like, I just did not like him. And I used to pray, God, strike him with lightning. Like, strike him down. Because he was my arch enemy. Like, we just, on the playground, we would diss each other. And he'd make me cry. And I would run away crying. And I just, I, I prayed, Lord, take him down. You know, what do we want? Like, with, with people like that, do, do we want them to just not pray that? Do, like, do we want to say to David in this moment, David, you can't say that. You can't say God destroy people and kill people. You got to just stuff that down. You, you got to just be a good person, David. Here's the reality. Guys, sometimes we get angry. Sometimes we get frustrated. Sometimes we say stuff that's kind of mean. Sometimes we say stuff that's kind of comes out of the wickedness of our heart. God can handle that. Did you know that your prayers don't have to be perfect? Like, you don't have to be like, I have to make sure that every word is approved. Like, I can't say anything about how I'm really feeling. Guys, if you're dealing with emotions, if you're dealing with stress, if you're dealing with feeling like God let you down, he didn't, but if you're dealing like he did, if you're feeling like he did let you down, if you're looking at your life and you're looking at the broken pieces of your family or your life or your friends or just, and you're looking at these broken pieces, guys, you can let God know how you feel. You can let it all out. You can be emotional and he can handle it. He actually invites it. Remember, emotional options. We can either stuff it inside. We can either just lash out at our friends and family or what's the third option? Remember how I dug underneath that fence? We dig down deep and we pray and we bring it to God and we lay it in front of him and we cast all our cares upon him because he cares for us. And as you wrestle through your emotions with God and through your fears and anxieties, you will actually start to realize that you are developing a deeper relationship with him than you ever did before. Some of you guys aren't bringing that stuff to the Lord. You're just bringing it to your friends or just to your, your journal or, or whatever. God says, bring it to me. The last verse we read is verse eight. He says, salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing is upon your people. That's the reality. Guys, God's salvation belongs to him. Our salvation, our lives are in his hands. And God looks at you guys, sinful as you are, sinful as I am, sinful as we are. God looks at us and says, you are my children and I love you and you can bring all of your emotions, all of your fears and anxieties and lay them down at my feet. God, you are so good to us. But God, there, there's some of us in this circle right now who we are going through hard things, difficult things, struggles. And that's, that's not fun. It's hard and it's painful and we don't like it. We love you, God, and we know you love us. We thank you that you're our shield our protector when times are hard. We thank you that you're our glory, that when all of our identities fall by the wayside, all of the masks that we put on to pretend we're someone else, when all of that's stripped away, God, we still have you, and that's all we need. Our relationship to you, our identity, that we are a son and a daughter of Christ. Thank you, Lord, for saving us. God, I pray 
that you'd help us here. We love you, Lord. We thank you. We thank you that your salvation is with us. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for being a savior. We love you, Jesus, and we ask this in your name. Amen.